0: Hello, my name is Azim Azar, the curator of The Exponential View. Coming up in our third podcast is a discussion on super longevity and super well-being. Our speaker is Dr. Shumal Chandaria, a philosopher, investor and entrepreneur. After a successful career in banking, Shumal launched several hedge funds before moving into research. He specialises in computational neuroscience and artificial intelligence. And alongside his academic work, Shumal is a senior advisor at Google DeepMind. This podcast was recorded during a private Exponential View event in London in December 2016. You can learn more about our events by signing up to The Exponential View at www.exponentialview.co.
1: Great. Great. Thank you, Zim. So um, we're going to start with a story, and uh, hopefully the story will have a moral which will set up the evening. So... In ancient Greek mythology, the goddess of dawn, Eos, falls in love with a handsome Trojan prince called Tithonius. But Eos is an immortal goddess, and Tithonius is merely a mortal man. So she begs the mighty Zeus to make Tithonius immortal. But Eos had forgotten to ask for eternal youth. So Tithonius ages and withers. He becomes bedridden and babbles all day, and eventually he shrivels up into a grasshopper. So what's the moral of the story? Well, it's at least that life extension alone is not enough. So please remember that when we're talking about everything today. I'm gonna cover four big topics. Um, understanding longevity trends, uh, then we're going to do a deep dive into the science of, um, of, of life extension, and then we're going to cover more social, ethical, and political issues, and, and that may um, go into a Q&A, in fact. We'll start with Madame Jean Calmont, who is the oldest recorded, verified, person to have lived and she died when she was 122 and it's quite impressive that she smoked for most of her life not that much but she died in 1997 and we haven't had anyone who's got to her age yet and there's a there's probably a reason for that it looks like human beings have a kind of hard stop at around 120 you know there's some biological features and and that's that's important so let's look at you know some data on this. So this is data from the Office for National Statistics, and it shows longevity curves from 1851 to projected down here is 2031. So people born in 1851. Um, this is the proportion of people who survived uh, during their lifetime. What we see here is that we've seen. A very big change in the last you know 200 years which is that there's been this big trend in compression of morbidity and a very big change in the increase in the average lifespan so let's look at the median life the median life in 1851 um, was 45 years old the median life expected for someone born in 2031 will be around 88 years old we, we will see about a doubling of life expectancy, average life expectancy. But what's interesting is that during that period, we will have only seen, um, actually from, from 1851 to kind of current, we've only seen about a 10% increase in the 99th percentile. Now, uh, So the 99th percentile is obviously not maximum life, um, but, it's, but it's getting close. So... What can we draw from this? What are the big trends here? The first big trend is that there's a squaring out of this curve. So initially, of course, you know, there's a huge improvement in infant mortality. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, in 1851, it's about a 25% chance that you won't be around after the age of five. So that's been a big improvement, but also there's been an increase, a squaring out of this curve. And you can think of it as um, an increase in, the, in, in average life expectancy as a ratio of hu- a maximum human lifespan, the kind of 120-year number. And that's sometimes called the compression of morbidity. So if we were to think about, you know, what would be the limit of this trend? Um, what, you know, how far could we push this? Well, what we, we would end up is with this kind of rather perfect mortality curve where everyone would live to 110 or 120 and then just fall off a cliff. That's one big trend that we've seen so far, which is compression morbidity. But there's another um, trend that we'll be talking about, which is in fact something where we're gonna need some serious science. And that is the increasing, uh, using science to increase maximum human lifespan. So that would be something like that. So what we're, what we're, you know, the science of longevity is ultimately um, going to, uh, the, the, the completion of the trend will end up in this kind of uh, green curve. So very similarly to the kind of population level statistics are the um, individual health span. So let's look at, let's look at a sort of rather, you know, a typical life where someone lives to the very ripe old age of 95. Um, And what we see here is their health utility index plotted across their life. And health utility index is 100% represents perfect health and 0% represents death. So what we see on this red curve is um, that uh, someone starts to have declining health and by the time they're in their mid-60s, they start to have rather poor health, you know, below 50%. And they have two or three decades of poor health, and then eventually die at 95. Now let's consider another life, an orange life, which is in fact shorter. So the orange life, uh, the person dies at 90, but they are far healthier throughout their lives. In fact, it's only in their late 80s that they start to have declining health. So the question is: what is the better life? Well, health economists have been thinking about this for a long time, um, and they've come up with a measure called the quality- Adjusted life Years measure, um, and, or the quality. And the quality is essentially the area under the curve. So the quality of the orange life is, the orange life has 80 qualities. But the longer life only has 61 qualities. So on this basis, the longer life is not the better life. So this is something to to really um, bear in mind. What we're looking for is something else than length. So the message really is that um, life extension alone is not exactly what we're looking for. We don't want to become locus. What we want is a squaring out of the longevity curve, of the health curve. on an individual basis, we want health extension. So this is really what the science of longevity is about. Um, And as you'll see when we get into the science part of it, this is lucky because it turns out the way we're going to increase life expectancy is in fact by increasing health. So let's look at some some of the science. Now, this uh, rather scary-looking man is... is, uh, uh, a researcher called Aubrey de Grey, and he was a little ahead of his time because I think, you know, probably um, 20 years ago, maybe, or 15, 20 years ago, he had the view that we actually have got aging wrong. Aging is a disease, which was quite a controversial view at that time, but I think more and more people have come to, to uh, accept this view. And his idea was that as we age, we end up um, with cellular and organ system <coughs> level damage. Um, and that increases as we age. But we also have mechanisms, cellular repair mechanisms. So initially, our cellular repair mechanism capacity is above the amount of, of um, uh, damage, cellular damage and organ damage that we're, that we're getting. But at some point, the repair mechanisms start declining and um, they can't keep up with the damage. And the net accumulation of damage is really what aging is. So this is a very interesting view of what aging is. And and in fact, it turns out that his his hypothesis really probably has a lot of merit and um, that we're gonna be looking at what is this damage. So let's start with one of the first and most important areas in in, in aging. Um, So, just a little background here. Um, At the end, this is a chromosome, and at the end of the um, DNA strands, there'll be the way your cell replicates is that it has to have some excess DNA. Um, at the end of the chromosomes, uh, to allow a cell to successfully uh, t- to allow uh, uh, the DNA to be replicated, and every time the cell replicates, a little bit of this um, cannon fodder DNA, telomeres, um, is is uh, removed, and so <clears throat> there is a limit to the amount of uh, cell divisions. Uh, that can happen with an cell and that limit is called the Hayflick limit and it's, it, it varies but it's somewhere between say 60 and 100 cell divisions you know, of, of that order of magnitude. After a cell divides 70, 80 times, that's it and now the cell is either senescent, doesn't divide, just hangs around, or in fact dies, goes through something called apoptosis. And this is a fundamental problem. Because if this is the case, we can our cells can't divide. You know, as we get older, we'll just run out of capacity, and uh, and you know we'll just um, accumulate damage, end up with senescent cells, or just um, lose cells, lose cells in the brain or other vital organs, and age, and then eventually die. So the question is: Is there any way around this? Now, there are species that, in fact, have some very special traits. They can continue to grow. So this is a lobster. It's very, you know, it's very odd. This is a typical sized lobster. And this is a huge lobster. And, 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 and uh, what happens is that um, eventually this lobster will continue to grow, but eventually, you know, because lobsters have exoskeletons, it just requires too much energy and they won't survive. But at a cellular level, they have something very interesting. They have an enzyme, and and, and we humans also can express this enzyme, called telomerase. Now, what telomerase does is it increases the length of the telomeres. And this can happen in humans as well. And it essentially gives the cell, I I mean, you know, it gives us a prospect of cellular immortality. So this is going to be something that will be very important if we can... Uh, um, somehow activate our own telomerase or perhaps activate it through gene therapy um, we may be able to get cellular immortality which will turn out to be an important piece of ending ending ageing. Another very, very, very important concept in ageing is something that the body does us automatically and that's autophagy or autophagy, so self-eating. In every cell, the cell can be turned into a kind of repair mode. And uh, especially when, for example, calories are scarce, the cell starts to re- uh, recycle a lot of the, the, its components that aren't working well. well. Well, all of its components. So, for example, it can recycle proteins, mitochondria and other um, organelles. Um, and the important thing about this is that we're going to have damaged proteins. So, for example, as you as you get dementia, Alzheimer's, we're going to have um, uh, misfolded proteins and uh, protein aggregates. And of course, wouldn't it be handy if the cell could just hoover up all of this uh, damaged stuff and engulf it into something called an autophagosome and 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 mix it in with a lysosome and dissolve it away, and then take the ingredients and build fresh juvenile structures so completely recycled from from the start and this this is going to turn out to be probably the most important um, technology that we humans already have except that we're not activating it uh, appropriately and in fact we may have to activate it uh, even more than nature intended now over the last few years we've really started to understand what are the key pathways that activate this autophagy pathway And this is a complicated slide, but I'll kind of, you know, show you some some key things that you you want to to know. So one of the most important uh, um, uh, cell signaling uh, uh, complex is something called mTOR, it stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. And this is the master switch in every cell which shifts the cell from growth to repair. Um, and when we're growing, you know, uh, when, we're, when, when, we're, when we're young, when we're adolescents, we want to, uh, when we want to build muscle after a, after a training session, we want to activate mTOR. But we want to inhibit mTOR um, to push the cell into rejuvenation and specifically to increase autophagy and therefore increase longevity. And that we now have various things like rapamycin. We've discovered rapamycin, discovered on Easter Island, a very interesting story of how it was done. It comes from the island of Rapa Nui, and that's why it's called rapamycin, but, and, and that is specifically the target of mTOR. Um, and it turns out that caloric restriction also activates the same pathway. Um, too much insulin um, goes the other way, and there's a whole... Uh, a series of other things called sirtuins, which are where we get uh, resveratrol, the red wine, the active, you know, the, the exciting ingredient in red wine, um, which activates sirtuins, which again lead to longevity. So, we're ultimately looking at deep down in the cell to try to find these these um, characters. Now, what we just talked about is one particular aspect of ageing, telomere attrition, and then, and then maybe some, some, some autophagy. But um, in the last few years, in the last three or four years, we've now identified nine or ten hallmarks of ageing. It says nine hallmarks, but now I think I've been told that, in fact, really we should have had a glycation here as well. So it's probably ten, ten hallmarks of ageing. And that's interesting because it means that we're not talking about hundreds of factors that we don't understand. We, in fact, know exactly what causes aging. So it's all of these nine things. Genomic instability, so DNA damage, telomere attrition. We talked about uh, declining telomere lengths. Epigenetic alterations, this is uh, on top of our genome. We have this layer of, um, actually it's a chemical layer that uh, switches that, that um, Govern gene expression called the epigenome, and uh, as we age, um, our, you know, we start getting alterations in this, DNA methylation, and, um, and we can measure this. You can actually go into a lab in, um, in one of the London hospitals, and they will tell you, based on your methylation profile, your biological age. Um, loss of uh, proteostasis, as we, you know, uh, proteins start misfolding, and we get things like Alzheimer's and and white hair and all sorts of things like that. Um, nutrient sensing um, dysregulation—that's that essentially, um, you know, ultimately insulin resistance and and um, uh, diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, mitochondrial dysfunction. Particularly important, um, mitochondria are the powerhouses, and as we age, they um, they don't work as well. And ultimately, well, we'll see what we need. Can do this cellular senescence. We just briefly talked on this, but uh, senescent cells hang around and cause chaos and cause uh, inflammation and all sorts of things. Inflammation itself alters cells, uh, uh, intercellular communication, inflammatory cytokines, and stem cell exhaustion. As uh, uh, something I haven't mentioned, but but um, you know we all have um, uh, stem cells as we age. Uh, these stem cells uh, uh, reduce and. Stem cells are incredibly important to rejuvenate um, uh, tissues. So, the issue here is that each one of these nine hallmarks of aging poses an engineering challenge. So, this is ultimately an engineering problem. Um, We can, we will be able to have stem cell based therapies. There are already therapies that will activate our own body's stem cells and then. You know, you can go to a clinic in Thailand already and get fresh stem cells put in. Um, uh, There are factors which are um, uh, changing intercellular communications, factors in young blood. Um, We will be able to um, eliminate, maybe through autophagy and other things, uh, uh, damaged DNA. Um, um, We will be able to reactivate um, uh, uh, telomere length through telomerase. Um, there'll be epigenetic drugs. The drugs they the, um, and uh, uh, nutrient sensing. Will, we, we can already start to uh, impact these pathways through various drugs um, and uh, clearing senescent cells um, and something called mitophagy, which is so which is which is the um, autophagy of mitochondria. So killing. Uh, old stale mitochondria and getting fresh new ones. So all of these things, we already know the path, you know, how we're going to tackle these problems. We can't do it yet. We can't do it yet for all of them, but we've got really interesting progress on every single one. So the point of this is that it is only a matter of time <coughs> where we'll get, make progress on all of these and we'll be able to have treatments on all of them. The science of longevity has got some really serious players in it. Just uh, put a few up here, but, there, you know, it's it, like artificial intelligence. It's probably one of the really hot areas um, at the moment, um, and it's not just governments. I mean, actually, the NIH and the U.S. government, uh, the NIA and the NIH are really serious players, actually. I mean, I'm very pleased that, that they are, not, 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 not many other governments, but the... But the um, but the US government. Uh, Human Longevity Inc. is is, uh, very famous because Craig Ventner was the man behind the Human Genome Project. That's Peter Diamantis, who uh, is from Singularity. Um, Google, through Calico, have have a really serious effort. This is Professor George Church, one of the founders of the CRISPR technology, uh, which is the gene editing technology (coughs) Where we'll be able to change people's genomes using his technology. Um, this is a company called Bioviva, and um, Liz Parrish is the chief executive. She is the first person to have had gene therapy, specific a couple of gene therapies, but one of them specifically is telomerase. So the you know she's had a gene inserted uh, through a particular viral vector, um, and. Uh, we, she is patient zero actually in the world, and um, so we we'll, we'll, we'll see, see the results that she's, she's going to get. Now, the question is, is a long life a good life? Yeah, I mean um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately a philosopher, so you know this is kind of the most important issues. And the question is that if we can't live good lives now with our current lifespan, why should any more life be at all beneficial? Um, You know, we might be bored, we might be tired, we might be miserable. So we might have a glimmer of an answer to this question, which is that good lives require development they require us to develop our virtues and our mental attributes they require us to develop our wisdom and experience they require us to develop a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives but if we can start developing these attributes then more life will actually lead to more development and so will lead to Better lives and as we live longer and as time goes on we may be able to create new technologies which will enhance our well-being and actually maybe create a state which we can call super well-being so super longevity we said was not everything we want but it might actually be quite important it might be important to create super well being, because it will give us the time to really develop our lives. Um, so that's the kind of uh, positive hope. I just want to raise a few ethical, social issues. Let's just head some of them off. The first thing that people think about is that look, if we're going to live for all this time, you know what's going to happen to the world population? I mean, this is terrible. How are we going to cope? How's the planet going to cope? And that's that's a real issue. Um, so if we are to end ageing, um, um, then you know, is there going to be an explosion in population? Well, there's a few things that we need to think about here. One one is that what we've seen is that as um, as there's been an increase in life. Uh, life extension um, over the last few centuries, birth rates have gone down. And in fact, in Western Europe and in many countries with uh, very high life expectancy, in Japan and um, Italy and many, many other countries, um, we are now below replacement rate. So there may be some equilibrating factors. I mean, you know, we we might be be seeing something different. The second so uh, we, we can discuss more of this. Uh, the second point I want to um, um, mention is that is that we have some really serious philosophical issues around you know death being very important in human life. And um, the existential philosophers, especially um, um, ones like Heidegger, um, talk about Dasein, the human being, um, being determined by um, the view the being towards death that death gives a sense of urgency to our life in fact imbues it with some sort of meaning so we you know this is this is an important issue to think about the third one is you know well what do we you know how do we cope with the structure of society i mean aging is quite important for our um for, for our uh, careers and our companies, we need to make way for the young um, as we age, and uh, what will happen you know we'll just get a a blockage on the line and uh, you know what happens to pensions what happens to career opportunities uh, The fourth area that I think is going to be very important is the exacerbation um, of of inequality uh, I, and I'm actually a little pessimistic about this. I think that um, that uh, as we um, progress with the end of aging um, uh, this may benefit uh, the rich more initially um, and may give them more power and so I think that you know this is something that we really need to think about the last one is a, is, is, is is you know what does it mean about humanity are we going to create a new species are we ultimately going to create some sort of a superhuman elite, a homo deus as uh, Harari has called it. This is really important because, um, you know, we, we need to understand, you know, what the ethical implications are, you know, what's going to be of value in this new species. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Great seats. Mm. Thank you, Shummel. While people get a chance to line up some questions, I have a couple of questions uh, for you. So I'm interested, first of all, in the, the, the science side. Um, I mean, I read that our favourite uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Peter Thiel, Wanted to, the, the headline was, Peter Thiel wants young human blood ah. uh, because he wants to live forever. Uh, so so uh, when we look at the, the science and the, 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 the nature of ageing, are all nine or ten of those pathways involved in each of our ageing, or do we have a different mix of it?
1: Yeah, so, so the particular therapies or interventions that are, that, that are around are, are going to be hitting several of these things all at once. And it looks like young blood. I know this sounds like vampires. Um, well, I, 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 I'll, I'll, should I should I take you through some sure, some, yeah, some we, potential yeah, interventions? Yeah. So let's let's look at what you know what kind of um, interventions, uh, including what several Silicon Valley billionaires are doing. Not just young blood. And I'll tell you, there's some some other stuff that they're doing as well. Let's 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 go from sort of low risk to high risk. Um, well. Uh, probably the one with the most evidence is caloric restriction, but it's probably the one that's, you know, most difficult and actually least palatable. We know from yeast, from worms, from flies, from, you know, all the way to primates, that caloric restriction increases lifespan. And we have very good evidence for this. there may be an easier way to do this because caloric restriction is essentially activating autophagy, which I talked about earlier. But there are some protocols around intermittent fasting and then another one, which is a longer fast, uh, but, but not a pure fast, called the fasting mim- mimicking diet, which comes out of the lab of Professor Walter Longo in um, California, the National Institute of Aging, which actually have a very similar effect um, on this. Then there's a whole series of nutraceuticals um, um, resveratrol, I think we saw on one of the, one of the complex slides. Uh, um nicotinamide riboside, um, uh, cucuramin, which is kind of the um, turmeric stuff, which are kind of helpful, but maybe not gonna change the needle too much. Then, then we've already got some drugs. Um, there's one very safe drug uh, called metformin, which has been used for years for diabetes. But then we have rapamycin, which does have side effects, and that's really powerful. So again, in terms of you know this may be low risk, um, but uh, this one is is definitely. I mean, I, the way I look at risk is risk in return is that we're we're um, either collecting gold coins or we're collecting pennies, and we're either collecting them in front of a steamroller or a tricycle. So so um, metformin is either a pennies or gold coins, actually, um, but it's definitely in front of a tricycle. Rapamycin is probably a gold coin, but it may be in front of a steamroller, as in, you know, we've got to, we got we don't know what the, the long-term effects are, but it's pretty amazing. And I know, I mean, obviously, you know, in the communities that we go around in, there are a few people doing this, but you've got to be very careful with the intervention, probably just, you know, once a month or something like that. Now, Parabiosis, which is this uh, vampirian type of thing that we talked about. So parabiosis is this was this this goes back a long time, um, um, where we were able able to um, sew together the blood supplies of two um, uh, mice, um, an old mouse and a young mouse. And um, what happens is that uh, the old mice, uh, the old mouse, um, rejuvenates all. You know, damage is, is, is improved, um, their metabolic disorders go away, uh, um, heart disease, diabetes, all this kind of stuff just, just disappears. And all that we know is that they're sharing blood supply. Now we've identified, you know, what are these factors? Well, it's, it turns out that you don't have to have pure blood. You can just have the plasma. But it turns out that it's probably only about, we've identified down to around 50 factors that it might be in the plasma. But we don't know. Everyone's working on it. But the thing is, taking plasma is a pretty low-risk thing to do.
0: What happens to the young mouse?
1: Well, you know, it's a, a, interesting. I think, I think actually the young mouse probably has, has um, uh, enough reserve capacity. It doesn't kind of, you know, uh, uh, age. Because the young mouse is producing the factors. So it looks like it's positive factors that are doing this. But, but all sorts of things can happen. I mean, I mean... You can even have faecal transplants, which go the other way and actually make the young mouse on... Um,
0: fecal fe- transplants, just to be clear. Yes, yeah.
1: faecal transplants. Um, yeah. Poo. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, right. Um, another a very interesting therapy is um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, this has been around for a long time. It's It's pretty safe and has... Um, pretty amazing results in terms of activation of um, stem cells, omnipotent stem cells, uh, and uh, angiogenesis, so increase in blood supply, uh, blood, you know, fresh blood vessels, um, both in the central nervous system, so so for stroke patients and others, but also with, with wounds. And in fact, this is a very interesting area because, in fact, we talked about aging as this um, reversal of... Uh, If you want to reverse ageing, you have to reverse um, age-related damage. Well, um, uh, activation of stem cells um, and angiogenesis do exactly that. Uh, Then you have really serious stem cell therapy, which is um, around now. Exogenous uh, therapy. And finally, you have gene therapy and even gene editing. So gene therapy... Um, what uh, um, Liz Parrish had, um, which is introducing a gene and then finally going around and reprogramming your own genes using CRISPR or something like that. Um, and, you know, that we need to be very careful around um, because uh, we don't quite know how it all works. So, yeah, there are a number of things that people are already doing. My view is that there are some low risk, um, high return things on that list. Um, you know, probably the, 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 the simplest thing is, is actually a couple of times a week uh, just having one meal a day or something. That would be fine.
0: So there's a range of potential interventions. And when you now look out at what's happening in the market, are people bringing these things to market? Is regulation holding it back? Is it a free-for-all in China where you can get what you want because the regulatory situation is different. I mean, what does the, the picture actually look like for, for delivering these things?
1: Right. So I think obviously in, um, in the US and in, in, in many developed countries, there's a strong regulatory framework uh, around these things. Um, there are clinics outside of those jurisdictions where more is available, like, like stem cell therapy and, um, and potentially gene editing. My thinking is so far that people are being relatively sensible. And most of the scientists who are working in this area and the clinicians actually believe in evidence-based medicine. So they may try things on themselves, but I think most people are taking a view that you know before we unleash it out to the public, we need to we need to have really good evidence. and I think So at the moment, there's a debate. Of course, we can't really do randomised control trials around ageing. And the reason is because it would take 200 years. So at the moment, the real issue is what are the biomarkers that that we can really say are absolutely correlated with with ageing? And if we can identify those biomarkers, then we can start doing really serious um, clinical work.
0: Well, we, we've got quite an advanced group here. I'm wondering if anyone here has taken any of those steps up there. Yeah, we've got... What, what did you do? The blood transplant, yeah, I can tell, to us. Uh,
2: the nicotine... Uh, uh,
1: nicotinamide, uh, the nicotinamide, my beside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So are you doing the basis formula? I'm
2: uh, doing the pills you get to sort of take... One just day. NAD so on a own. milligrams, something like that.
0: Could you just... Just so that the, the rest of the room can, can yeah, hear okay, what yeah, you've yeah. been doing yeah.
2: The supplement... Uh, you can order it through online stores. I've just recently started taking it. I have no effect so far, but from credible sources, I've heard it's good, the people I trust.
0: Yeah, so... so I'm
2: thinking, how long I'm going to try it.
0: You look great for a 73-year-old. <laughs> <care. laughs>
2: well, what, what does it do with it?
1: In the mitochondria, we have something called NAD+. Uh, As you age, these levels decline. So um, nicotinamide riboside is a precursor of this. And there's a very famous uh, MIT professor called Lenny Garante, whose student was the guy who discovered, uh, David Sinclair, who discovered resveratrol. And uh, he is advocating taking um, NAD. And uh, the good thing about it, to be honest, is that because it's a derivative of vitamin B3, you know what? (sighs) Knock yourself out. Yes, you know,
0: frankly, take it in the morning. It'll give you some energy. So that was down at the low risk. Anyone doing anything more exciting? Blood transfusions from young blood or (laughs) fetal transplants? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Uh, Matteo. I'm going
1: to tell you this because it's from Norway (coughs) and you work for a Norwegian company, so you're going to like this. So I take some pills that I discovered a year ago, which are the
2: extract of uh, uh, bilberries and blueberries from Norway. And this company has managed to stabilize this molecule called anthocyanins, which are one of the most powerful natural anti-inflammatories. So I take two of these pills every
1: day, and all my little pains and sort of you know elbow pains and times completely disappeared the last year. They gave me an incredible uh, improvement on my health. And uh, yeah, there's yeah, so an original <laughs> company called Medox. Yeah, Meddox. so so anthocyanins. Uh, so this is an- anthocyanins. Anthocyanins are particularly powerful you know, polyphenol type compounds, um, which are found in blueberries and others. Anything purple, um, apart from beetroot, which is purple for another reason, purple sweet potato, so people talk about in Kyoto people live very long because of this purple sweet potato. So, you know, it's, my, my, my view is, I mean, I think anthocyanins are great, but I think you should eat purple fruits, and that's probably going to be... I love
0: beetroots, and you've now dashed... No, no, uh, the beetroots, beetroots are great as is well. Is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, good. that's good to know. Just uh, let, Let's just prep if people have got, got questions. I will to ask a question of, um, just on the other side, some of the social I- I- impact. So, with, with increasing lifespans, one I mean, of the things that I, I've spots just the last couple of weeks was the if you look at age cohorts and how well they've done economically over the last 10 or 15 years in the West the over 60s have done extremely well and the younger people have done much less well and you've got this huge unemployment in Spain if you look at votes in in brexit the the Leave campaign was overwhelmingly an older group the remain campaign was overwhelmingly a younger group if you look at uh, uh, Trump it was the same. The Trump voters were overwhelmingly older, so they, they're they they they're richer. They're kind of voting for things like Brexit and Trump, uh, and they're now going to live longer as well. Is this the start of a? And they want to have young blood to be to boot. Is this the start of a of a sort of permanent gerontocracy? Right. Well, that's a very interesting. So, so
1: I I, I you know I love the way you put that kind of. Uh, I think there's a meme out there around you know this kind of gerontocracy. But I, I would say that there is a kind of a, a flaw in your argument, which is that I don't think that on the whole, the current, lo- uh, the current uh, generation who is um, voting for Brexit and all are on average going to be dramatically um, uh, uh, living for longer. Um, we will probably see the trends that we saw in the ONS data um, and the reason is because the people who are going to be living longer right now for the next 10, 20 years will be the, a very small proportion. Ray Kurzweil. Oh, actually, we're going to be. Pushy. But, you know, special Silicon Valley types right. and, 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 and a small elite and the rich uh, who are going to get access to this. This is not, you know, a lot of these things, I suspect, will not be available on the NHS in the next decade or two. Right. Um, and, and, you know, on Medicaid and Medicare. This is part of the problem that I'm worried about inequality. I think, actually, rather than a gerontocracy, I think it's going to feed into the, another meme, which is around, the, you know, the, the, the issues around um, inequality and... and yeah, and, the and godlike her- elites and the useless
0: class. Right, the exactly. Harari. Her- yeah.
1: and, and And I think that, um, you, know, uh, you know, the elite will get better. So, so the issue, the, the dynamics are going to be probably that, that at the moment we'll get some, some life extension over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. But if you can survive probably to 2040, 2050, you might get to a level where you can survive healthy enough at, at that level, you, you'll be able to have such rejuvenation capacity that it will get you to the next Milestone, which will be the ultimate one where we'll end, uh, uh, end aging. And the, the question is, you know, who's, who's going to be around? It's probably not the mass of the older people right now.
0: Okay, good. I've got so many more questions for you, but I also know we've probably got people who want to ask questions and they not want to leave more than me. Yeah, sure. Sorry, Alicia, please go. Um, I'm just really curious about the sort of the at a human level, what the motivations are. Is it fear of death? Is it ego? Is it in you know in some Silicon Valley um, superstars' cases, I just want to be around to keep doing what I'm doing to allegedly better the world. Like, what are some of the Motivations that you've been seeing from people who yeah. have been
2: partaking in what's available.
1: I think I think this is a really important question you've raised. Really important, and that's actually why I try to spend a lot of time on thinking about what what is a, an ethical basis of, uh, you know, of 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 wanting longevity. And I think that for some, it is simply very much a fear of death, which is primeval. But I. I personally don't think that that's a good motivation. I think that actually a, a, a more ethical motivation is going to be how can we help humanity? How can we increase utility across the, across the ages? Ultimately, I'm a consequentialist. I'm probably more of an Aristotelian, but, but you know th- these things have to cash out in, in, in making people's lives go better. And so I think we do have a problem here. Um, nevertheless, let me sidestep your question because this thing is happening. We should have a debate and there will be this range of motivations from from very primeval, um, you know, fear of death to um, I want to do something more with my life or to, you know, we can improve ourselves as, as a species, we can make life better, we can alleviate suffering. You know, the the, the thing is that what I wanted to emphasize here is that actually it it's, turns out that increasing lifespan may be increasing health. And increasing health is probably increasing happiness. Uh, so, so I think there is a really strong moral case uh, for this. Um, Nick Bostrom, Professor Nick Bostrom at Oxford, has laid out a very clear moral case for, 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 for aging, a very sophisticated <laughs> moral case, um, which is based around you know utilitarian ethic.
0: While everyone looks up what consequentialism and Aristotelian is, uh, Frank, I think we've got a question up here. Uh, I was. Uh, I'm fascinated by the whole area. As I get older, I'm more interested in it. But when I see the charts showing the extension of life, I think about today populations of young people that are majority obese, and and they are the reflection of really bad health. And I don't see how it jives with the with those curves that you're showing. So, let me just throw out a, d- a data point on that. The you know, the average human needs about 2,100, 2,200 calories of food per day, and we produce 2,800 per day as a species across the planet. And the average American is eating 3,800 calories uh, per day, So, which may suggest some of the things you've seen. So- yeah, I, look, I, again,
1: I think this is a very interesting juxtaposition of, 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 of fact. I mean, I, I do think, okay, So so there is this one view that actually we might be seeing temporarily a generation that might be living shorter life than their parents and that is this um, a generation that has metabolic syndrome diabetes obesity hypertension cardiovascular disease ultimately um, several forms of de- dementia and these these you know, these diseases are probably caused, as, as Azim says, by, by um, caloric excess. Um, now, we're actually on, on the science of this stuff. I think we're, we're actually going to be making pretty good progress. You know, we're not there yet. You know, I mean, there's been a complete confusion about this issue for, 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 for many years. But I think that we may solve part of the. Uh, at least the science behind uh, metabolic syndrome in the same at the same time as um, as longevity and because they, because here's the thing, things like diabetes are the paradigm case of accelerated aging. So when we want accelerated aging, we look to diabetic mod, uh, uh, models and um, and so so for those we may you know our, our treatments may be able to address the underlying issues now of course there are there are there are other issues which is that i'm not sure where some of these treatments are going to end up are they going to allow us to continue living on a diet of mcdonald's or, or you know, I, don't food. point at me i haven't <laughs> had a mcdonald's in two years <laughs> <laughs> or, or or or
0: or actually it's going to change you know it's going to make us more educated now we um... it's i mean it's a very challenging now we've got some more questions who else is up can we try somebody at the back please i think anish
2: I'm going to be a bit unfair and ask you a slightly tricky question. In your list of things how to solve the problem, I didn't see any APM, Atomic Precision Manufacturing. If you could actually fix it, all these problems go away. Okay,
1: yes, you're right. I mean, those were things that are really available now. But things like nanotech, there are a whole lot of things that will be possible in the future. I mean, even before we get to nanotechnology going around, we're literally repairing cellular damage. You know, we we might get robots going around hunting cancer cells and just destroying them, so no one actually ever gets cancer. Or reprogramming immune
0: cells to kind of just you know. Um but you, what you what you described was about people getting to a certain point. If they can live to 2040, then and survive that long, then we should have these sorts of. Technologies which then gets to the the wider question. I think that you touched on which is so what is what does it all mean? So let, let's let's grab another couple of questions. Who's who's ready? Wow, there's John Rabin, please
2: Longer life healthier life You talk a lot about physical health What is mental health? What role does mental health play in that because we live in a world where it's affecting It's a, becoming a bigger and bigger disease at a younger younger age and a lot of what you described doesn 't sound like it would solve the mental health problem, so a longer life, a healthier life doesn't necessarily mean a better life if you can't solve issues around mental health
1: perfect i i couldn't agree with you more, and that's why i don't think a long and healthy life is enough. I think what we want is a good life how you know what a good life is that's an, you know th- those are deep philosophical questions, but at the very least it involves living well, perhaps some happiness, perhaps some fulfilment, a sense of meaning and purpose, having virtues, all of these things are important for a good life and certainly mental health is really, really critical. Now there's two, two aspects, I mean, so, so, so one thing is, we, we have mental health problems already, why would more life make it any better? So this is this is a really issue, and I don't I don't have an answer. I mean, they're big. So you know, this is this is certainly not a panacea for 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 our current um, uh, mental health problems. But what it does allow us is that if we were to develop, you know, improve our mental health and get better, and actually and and actually make our lives um, more the way we want them to be, then we could really start enjoying life. More. I mean, specifically I'm talking about, you know, creating well-being technologies. So we don't know yet, but we may be able to go in and um, alleviate depression in those who who have it. I mean, at the moment we're able to do transcranial stimulation uh, on the parietal lobe and actually alleviate resistant depression. So we may be able to basically hack our motivational systems, our motivational and emotional systems and create some sort of well-being. I mean, you know, you could think of technologies that have been around like meditation for a long time as, you know, the the Buddha basically figured out how to hack our underlying motivational systems. And he figured out that if we can hack those systems, then we can actually live better lives because we won't be buffeted around by our cravings and our desires, cravings and aversions. So similarly, we can now not just hack them by external practices like meditation. We may be able to develop uh, uh, technologies over the next 30,
0: 40 years which will be able to hack them at their core. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So let's go for another question. Uh, Amanda, up the front, just on the TCDS, Transcranial Direct Stimulation, if you do want to play around with it, there's a Reddit forum and it explains how you could hotwire your vacuum cleaner to... (laughs) at your own risk
2: so one of the the moral issues you
0: raised was about um, population increasing and I wondered what work if any is being done around reproductive health because obviously one of the issues of living so long is you, you stop to have your children by the time you turn 40 the next the next 80 years look different than if you can defer that uh, let's say that problem or that uh, that situation another 30 years out
1: yeah it's an interesting thing i mean if we can start to end aging i think we may be able to do something about uh, reproductive life as well i mean women are born with certain number of fi- a finite number of eggs but we may be able to create uh, fresh
0: ice. Well, there's a, there's a um, one of the subscribers to Exponential View is Martin Varsavsky, and he's the CEO of Prelude Fertility. So he's just raised $200 million to help women choose the time that they have their kids through a complicated set of sort of egg donation and freezing processes. So maybe next year, he said next time he's flying through, he'll do one of these and he can answer your question. Oh, sorry, there's a lady there. It seems to me that we have created a problem, uh, you know, like obesity ourselves, and instead of going to the root of solving that problem, we're trying to kind of, instead of changing the habit of eating or getting rid of all these sugar companies and burger companies, we're trying to then feed something else to kind of get rid of that problem. Is it not, is there, is anyone trying to kind of get to the root of the problem instead of?
1: I, you know, I, I mean, again, I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, it's uh, it, we know that there is an issue in obesity. We're starting to, you know, and yet we have this processed food industry which makes things worse. We have, you know, um, many lifestyle habits which is just making things really bad. However, I, I would like to say that, you know, I think this is probably, you know, we're probably... Going, going at the same problem from different directions. So, so I, I, I see that that longevity uh, uh, research will actually end up improving health uh, and allowing people to, well, perhaps. I mean, so some of these things, like like um, resveratrol, for example. Some of the evidence is that it actually doesn't help. It's, it's not that effective on super healthy people but it is extremely effective on those people that are living eating a sort of modern lifestyle cafeteria type diet and actually it staves off a lot of the damage that uh, uh, a high fat high carbohydrate uh, fructose
0: you know diet has I think Michelle you've got a question yeah yeah with all the techniques that you have around um, extending life and and you laid out nine or ten things there do they all have the same impact on your mental fitness and extending that as well because otherwise we could end up in a situation where we've got a lot of old people who have all dementia and and we've got this very non-productive big part of society.
1: Great question and it's a very important to clear up. In fact, um, dementia and aging related uh, brain diseases, uh, Alzheimer's, are just another form of accumulated age-related damage in, in, in the brain in this case. You know, anti-aging therapy specifically are around to, to, to stop this damage. So it will be no good at all, because that would just be ending up as grasshoppers. Um, <laughs> what we, what, you know, so, so the, 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 the anti-aging technologies are specifically around um, all organs in the body, especially the brain. Um, so what's exciting is that we are going to be able to rejuvenate brains. So, you know, by the time you're 50, 60, you've already got quite a lot of um, damage. So, hi- for example, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, has been able to um, increase blood flow in brains and actually increase cognitive uh,
0: capacity. Um, sorry, so for maybe more from a philosophical pr- perspective. Um, it is somewhat ironic that, as you mentioned, science looks at aging as a, as a disease, right? While at the same time, nature has actually designed death as a form of evolution. and and evolution, and the rejuvenation of the gene pool. So is it somehow that when we're acting selfishly and trying to stick around forever through these kind of medical progress, that we're kind of robbing uh, human species of their own progress, not just from a biological perspective, but also from a, let's say, worldview perspective, new ideas and and progress in in general? So how do you
2: resolve that conflict from a philosophical
1: perspective? Yeah, good, good, good question. I think there are actually two questions there. The first question is that, you know, are we going against nature's design, nature's order? And there I think I'm going to take a really robust view, which is that um, there is no morality in evolution. You know, we humans are, are setting our values. We have actually, we humans have outgrown our evolutionary value function. Okay, we're not just interested in passing on our genes. We might decide to commit genetic suicide and then also do ballet, which probably has no uh, evolutionary advantage at all. So so, so I think that I'm completely comfortable in... in, um, Humanity moving away from its evolutionary heritage. The second question was that: Well, what does that mean for for um, you know human progress uh, from an evolutionary perspective? You know, have we gone? You know, have we just stopped our evolutionary progress? And I think probably yes. But actually, we probably stopped it by by by, saved, by, by improving medicine in the last uh, century. We, we've already disconnected ourselves from evolution, and now it's up to us. To find what values do we want um, humanity to stand for and what do we want to promote? And that's really hard. And that's why people are thinking about things post human um, uh, type of uh, uh, societies. You know, how should we evolve, but not evolve from a, a genetic point of view? How should we progress as a species?
2: I'm, I'm going to build on a couple of the questions that have been raised about aging is not just about. Getting dementia, as it were, mentally, but it's also about getting set in your ways. You know, we we become sort of, you know, the the ruts get deeper and deeper in in the way we think and our way we approach things, our own moral code, and the more we practice them, the more deep set they become. So, so I just like to pick up the point that was just raised around if we don't allow the youth, if you like, to force, you know, effectively, youth is essentially a sort of revolution of the, of the brain, isn't it? A kind of they remold and depending on whatever happens to be there at the time, they kind of fix on the new w- reality. Are we not in danger of ending up with a sort of really coming back to um, yeah, sort of, Azim's sort of, original question about the sort of the Brexiteers? They may not be Brexiters anymore, but there'll be something gerontocracy, and the, yeah. and the gerontocracy will be set in <laughs> in a particular rut, And there won't be enough power with the youth, and they won't, unless other than pure yeah. revolution, to actually.
1: I think that's a great point. Um, I think actually it's one of the points I was thinking about, about, about raising. The Economist a few months ago had a leader on this, and actually that was one of the main points that they made, which is that the problem is that um, we seem to, well, first of all, I'm not sure we know for sure Certainly in our current society, as you get older, you get more set in your ways. So the kind of creativity and the innovation and the decline as you get older. Now, it may be that um, that's simply a factor of getting wiser, um, in which case it will continue. It may be, who knows, it might be something to do with the declining cognitive capacity. but if it is if it is the uh, if it is the former, then we do have a problem, and I do think, and it's not just getting set in your ways. I think there's there's also evidence around risk aversion. Risk aversion um, increases as you get older, and so we will you know we will have this very risk averse society, and of course perhaps even more risk averse than we think, because of course by ending aging, you haven't ended death. You can still be blown up, or you can still fall off a cliff. Um, you can and 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 imagine the burden that you have you know the potential um now you're not just gambling a, you know a few decades you're gambling a millennia by by, by taking risks so you might be, be even more risk-averse so i think there are tremendous issues around these particular points i think it's a very good fantastic point. Mm-hmm.
0: uh Marduban had a question up here yeah um i guess the key thing is uh, for
1: me um how did you really get started and what's your quest in this what are you trying
2: to get out of it
1: oh nice okay good how did I get started? Well, so <laughs> I've done as kind of you know intimated i' I've, I've, I've got a very wide background. I mean it goes from computational neuroscience to to physics to 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 mathematics to philosophy and uh, biology. I always was you know wondering you know like how does this come together, but I do think we're in a very important phase right now, which is that we're about, as, uh, I'm, a, I'm a great Harari fan, Yuval Harari, and his, his, his thesis is that, you know, we have solved um, the three big problems that we've had for the last 70,000 years, war, famine, and, and plague. And humanity's next agenda is um he 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 talks about it in different sense he talks about immortality and all and and bliss and all this kind of stuff but my 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 view is that we have the possibility of having super intelligence super longevity and super well-being i mean i'm at google deep mind and we're working on artificial intelligence and i think this thing is really happening it's gonna happen by having external artificial intelligence agents, but we're also gonna be able to ultimately enhance human capacities, uh, perhaps uh, human brain power. We're going to be able to have super longevity, but without super well-being, both of these things are really potentially dangerous and maybe not worthwhile. Um, So my view is I want to um, kind of Propose that this is a very special time. We need to think very deeply about these issues um, from a scientific perspective, from a philosophical perspective, from an economic perspective, from a political perspective. And we shouldn't uh, forget that if ultimately it's about what do we want to do with humanity. And for me, super well being is the most important part of that.
0: Well, Shamal, you've really taken us on a great tour. Uh, it's been Absolutely fantastic. So let's start by just saying thank you, Well, thanks for listening to the Exponential View podcast. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, don't forget to sign up to the newsletter at www.exponentialview.co.